This is Talking Asset Management with KPMG. In today's episode, Greg Williams, National Sector Leader for Asset Management at KPMG US, hosts a conversation with KPMG Asset Management Leaders and the KPMG US Office of the Chief Economist, exploring macro trends in the global economy and the impact on the asset management industry in the Americas. Welcome to KPMG's Asset Management Podcast, and thanks to all of you for joining us today. I'm Greg Williams, U.S. Leader for Asset Management, and today I'm joined by my fellow partners in asset management and real estate leaders in Canada, James Lowen and Tom Rothfischer, asset management leader in Brazil, Lino Jr., and asset management leader in Mexico, Carlos Fernandez. We have a special guest with us today, Tim Mahidi, who's in KPMG's Office of Chief Economist in the U.S., And we've asked Tim to come to us today to share his thoughts on the macro trends that are happening in the global economy. We are in a unique environment coming out of a pandemic-induced recession, something that I continue to say we don't have a playbook for these because, at least in my lifetime, there hasn't been a pandemic. So it's creating some unique and uncertain issues in the economy that we haven't seen before. I think it's going to really create some opportunities as well as challenges for those in the asset management and real estate industry. So, again, thank you for joining. And I'm going to turn it over to Tim to give us some of his thoughts on on the economy. And then the rest of us are going to come back and talk a little bit about what we're seeing on the ground as it relates to our, our clients and our industry. So, Tim, welcome, and I'll turn it over to you. Thanks so much, Greg. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I'm, I'm excited to not only give my viewpoints and the viewpoints of KPMG Economics, but to hear about what's going on in these countries. As economists, we're always kind of looking at data that's at least a couple of weeks, probably a month or two old. And with these kind of moments we have where we're, we're looking at you know potential turning points in the economy, it's helpful to hear what folks in the industry are looking at. So I'm very excited today. Um, just to just to quickly build on your analogy of the playbook, you're right. We don't have a playbook for the situation. We keep trying to write one, and then we're tearing out pages as we go along because things are changing by the week. So it's like we're football coaches on the sidelines. Just you know, our, our every every out pass we throw is incomplete at this moment. It's a difficult situation to kind of fit together what the economic narrative is. Um, and I, I guess the place I have to start is kind of where we are on, on the global stage. There's a lot to talk about. Um, And I'm going to draw some contrasts as we talk today about what's going on abroad and what's going on in the U.S. There's similarities, but there's important differences. Um, There's sources of strength in the U.S. that you're not seeing in some other places. And and some of the shocks that we're experiencing um, are are less severe in the U.S. But there are many things, unfortunately, on the global stage that are concerning. You know, I, I, I don't have to list all of them. There's a lot of geopolitical tension, Russia, Ukraine, what's going on in parts of Asia, supply chain issues continue to persist, different, you know, global global pandemic coming out of COVID, what's going on with other diseases that we're starting to hear about. There's a lot that is shocking our economy. And more importantly, the shocks are happening sequentially. So, you know, in Previous periods, you'd get a shock and kind of get a little bit of break between that shock and the next shock and kind of the economy would would equilibrate. But we're just getting shock after shock after shock. And it's leading to some really – it's done two things. It's made the economic data look confusing. And it's also maybe more importantly brought forward and uh, accelerated some kind of disturbing trends that were going on prior to the pandemic. Uh, I'm going to talk about a lot of this stuff today, but the the first place I'll I'll start is, is in China. Um, There are, you know, that is traditionally the last couple decades, at least the last 40 decades, been a very strong economy. Uh, And there are reasons to think that there are some weaknesses inside of that country, particularly in the property market. 
uh, they're, they're really going to win economic growth. That's the world's second most important economy. That's outside of any of the geopolitical tension. You've got this really big economic force that's slowing. And that's going to have some real implications for commodity markets, commodity exporters. A lot, many of them are in Latin countries. Um, there's going to be less demand for those goods, even if the, you know, especially if prices continue to go up uh, and due to other factors. And so you've got kind of this interplay between a slowing Chinese economy, what's going on in Russia, Ukraine, other tensions in Asia, and then wrap all of that into the fact that we still haven't recovered from supply chain issues from the pandemic. And you've got a pretty precarious global economy that looks to be slowing pretty appreciably with high inflation in many places, quick and fast movements by many central banks. And because of many fiscal policies that were taken during the pandemic, and again, we'll talk about some of the Latin countries, you have high debt to GDP ratios, which means there's rollover risk with debt servicing. You've got all of these factors kind of coming together, creating a lot of instability on the global stage. And the outlook, I would say, at this moment is, you know, we're not forecasting a contraction in global activity. That would be pretty severe, but a significant slowdown for sure. And I would say some drivers of growth, you know, Europe and China look to be at the center of that. So maybe moving over to the um, to the U.S., you know, to, to draw some contrast there, I've painted a pretty, you know, uh, stark global picture. We're facing many of those same headwinds in the United States. So we've got inflation that's, you know, a 40-year high. We recently saw uh, inflationary pressures ease a little bit in the latest CPI report. At least that's what the headlines are going to tell you. There are reasons to be very concerned about that CPI report. Many of the drivers of inflation actually um, continue to look, you know, many of the, the drivers that won't turn around quickly based on Fed policies, things like shelter inflation, um, you know, which right now is somewhat resistant to interest rate increases, even though demand is cooling. Uh, things like pandemic-affected services, you know, uh, those type food pricing inflation, all of that stuff is, you know, kind of outside the Fed's purview. And those, even though we had a, a slowdown in the pace of inflation, it's still very high. And those underlying factors are concerning. Um, and so we've got high inflation. We've got the fastest pace of rate increases by the Federal Reserve since the mid-1990s. Um, that is quite stark. It has a lot of implications for both the economy here, the dollar, what goes on abroad, you know, what starts in the U.S. often spills over to the rest of the world. And so, and there's a lot of uncertainty about where that policy is going to go over the second half of the year. Um, we're already at what many of us consider to be a neutral policy stance. So what I mean by that is the kind of the, the place where, the, where monetary policy is neither speeding up the economy nor slowing it down. As we go above, you know, in September, we're going to another rate increase, probably 50, maybe 75 basis points, and then another maybe 50 in November and or December. You're starting to talk about going, um, you know, pretty far above that neutral kind of steady state, that, that, you know, cruising control for the economy, and that starts to look pretty contractionary, and that significantly raises recessionary risks inside the U.S. towards the end of this year, but really into next year. Um, so that that's a pretty that's a pretty difficult you know we've talked about soft landings that's a pretty difficult situation a pretty short runway for monetary policymakers to land their plane on because we haven't seen inflationary pressures come down because of this uncertainty with geopolitics the potential for more shocks this year unfortunately there's really not much they can do um, unless they're willing, really willing to jack up rates which is going to then turn into a significant contraction in consumer demand. Um, at a time when the rest of the world is looking pretty weak, too. So that's to add all those things up, 
Um, it's not looking particularly strong for the U.S. economy. Now, why are we not in a recession right now? Right, We just got our second quarter of negative GDP growth, back of the envelope kind of estimations generally tell you that if you get two negative quarters of GDP, GDP growth, that's a recession. Uh, normally, that's true. Going back to 1947, that has been true. But there have been rare moments in history where we have gotten two quarters of economic growth and we, it's not been deemed a recession. This is likely one of them. And the reason is really residing in the labor market. You know, we got those two quarters of negative growth. And then we right after that, we got employment data that showed the economy added over half a million jobs uh, in July. That's very strong. And so it's not that that labor market should be viewed as a forward-looking indicator. It should not be. Um, unemployment and uh, the unemployment rate and employment levels move around. And they're not always, you know, they always tell you what's coming, but it is a buffer uh, to a potential recession. So it's like the insulation in your home, right? If you're trying to figure out what's going on outside, you'll know if you have bad insulation, you know, your buffer's weak, you'll know it's cold, but you wouldn't necessarily use that to tell you what's it, what, well, what the weather's going to be like, you know, in 10 minutes. And so that's, that's kind of where we are with the labor market in terms of how we should be viewing that strength relative to what we're seeing as weakness in a lot of other areas. In, in relation to that labor market, which, you know, from our real estate in the U.S., it's always jobs, 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 right? That's what drives the real estate. When you look at that unemployment, and I've seen your projections over the next couple of years that you anticipate unemployment to stay relatively low, historically speaking. The, ch- the question I have, though, it, you know, the thing that's concerning me is that labor force participation rate is still, I think, below pre-COVID levels. And just how much does that concern you about the labor force participation rate as it relates to, you know, dealing with wage inflation, dealing with GDP growth in the future? Because that seems to be a, a big concern of, you know, our clients about where are we going to get the workers? And any thoughts on that? Yeah, Greg, you hit the nail on the head for what's a real risk to the labor market over the next, you know, couple years. Um, we had a chart in one of our chart books. We've actually been using it for quite some time. It's a very simple chart from an economic standpoint. It's one time series, but I love it because it's simple and it makes a very clear point. This labor force participation rate has been declining for the whole economy, has been declining for two decades. What do I mean by that? Generally speaking, when you have a recession, you see folks leave the labor force because they lose their jobs and they decide it's not worth to go, you know, being around and they go and do other things until the, the labor market improves. So that drops your labor force participation rate. And then in an expansion, those folks come back in and your labor force participation rate goes back up. That's traditionally, you know, prior to the early 2000s, been the relationship. And it really was boosted in the 60s and 70s as women entered the workforce, 60s, 70s, and early part of the 80s, as women entered the workforce. What we've seen since the mid-2000s is that we will, right before we enter a recession, labor force participation rate will, will be, you know, 65%. Then you'll have a recession, it'll drop, and then it will come back up a little bit over an expansion, and it will end somewhere below that level um, relative to where it was before the recession. So it's declining over time despite very strong um, very strong recoveries. You know, after the global financial crisis, it ended up over two percentage points below where it was prior to the global financial crisis. So that was a 10-year expansion. So something is going on there, to your point. And COVID, again, we saw the same relationship. We're still over one percentage point below where we were prior to COVID, uh, to the pandemic. That's concerning. And it should tell you, going forward, let's say we get a, let's say we get a recession, which is what we're talking about. Let's say the unemployment rate 
jumps up. And you're right. We don't have it going to like eight, nine percent that we saw during the global financial crisis. We have it going to, you know, five and a half ish, six percent over the next, you know, 18 months. That still would constitute a recession. That's a pretty stark jump, you know, from where we are now. But it's not the places you saw, you know, it's not what you saw in, in the in 2008. So what does that mean? Well, for a couple of reasons we can discuss, that may mean that some folks leave and there's some the demand for labor is, is reduced, and so supply and demand come a little bit more balanced. But the second you have another expansion, you're going to be right back in the same place that we're in right now, which is unable to find workers. Because the the satirline truth and the demographic truth is that, that we are all now realizing, some have realized before this, but I think it's really dawning on the rest of us, um, is that we're aging, our workforce is aging out, and we are not replacing workers fast enough. And so when you get in this place where you get little reprieves from this labor shortage, you can expect until until we start adding more workers or we start having a place where workers are needed less, both of those things take a lot of time, you're going to continually find yourself in a very short labor market during expansions. So, so Tim, I, I'd be interested, uh, just looking at what's happening in Canada, immigration is a very significant growth factor for our economy. Uh, we had a, a total shutdown during COVID. I mean, I think we were shut down a little bit more than, than the rest of the world in, in some areas here in Canada. But we're looking at really expanding uh, our immigration. Uh, for, for Canada, 400,000 a year for the next few years. We're expecting 600,000, 700,000 you know, additional foreign students to come back into the country, which I mean, those numbers may not sound big, but for a country that has 37 million people in it, it's a pretty significant impact for us, and it's always been a very traditional area for us to focus on to generate growth. What are you seeing in the U.S.? How do you see that having an impact, if at all, uh, just considering the, the impact that it's having for us here? I'd be interested in your views. No, it's a fantastic point, Tom. And one of the things, the U.S. and Canadian economies are, are, are fairly similar. There are differences, but they tend to track each other. This is a big, this is one of those big differences. And Greg, to go back to your point, and Tom, you touched on this, um, your labor supply is an important input into growth. Right? You need workers to be able to kind of continue your growth path um, over, over a long period of time. And so, Tom, to your, you know, when we think about that, you think, well, what are, what are the inputs, what are the major inputs in labor supply? It's two things. It's people having kids, you know, and that affects you depending on where you're allowed to work and how quickly your parents kick you out of your house, you know, 16 to 18 years later, sometimes 22 if you need to go to college first. But um, the other place is immigration. And, I, I, you know, I don't want to speculate on immigration policy in, in the United States, but I would say we've seen a, a, a marked slowdown for many reasons, some of which are just from the pandemic. And we've for a long time been short on on immigration and workers from other countries in STEM, uh, in STEM industries. And that has been one of the reasons that tech has seen such uh, strong wage growth in certain places. And so if we don't turn those release valves kind of like you expect they're happening in Canada to bring in some additional workers through immigration. We're really relying on folks to have additional kids. And as a father of two with young kids, I can tell you it is expensive and hard to have kids in the U.S. There's a reason the birth rate is declining, right? Surging house prices is not going to help that. 
And so, so affordability, high inflation, not going to help that, right? If we look long term, you're making it more expensive. So, that, so you then you really need that immigration release valve. And so that's where I would, you know, come out is you're absolutely right about the Canadian economy and that that being a big, a pretty big tailwind. And we could use some version of that in the United States, however that ends up policy or the end of the, you know, the end of the pandemic. But we we could yeah, definitely use that. So. These are really great. These are really great questions um, around kind of what lies ahead of us even after this recession, and maybe this is a good place to to stop for a second and talk about you know maybe a medium term view. There's a lot of headlines right now about inflation. There's a lot of viewpoints out there. A lot about recession. We talked about you know that's a pretty likely outcome, um, but but I think there's something that we should all be thinking about over the next you know ten years, and that's that there's a sequence of factors and things that are going to likely converge that make the next decade in terms of economic variables and economic stability look a lot different than the previous couple decades. And what do I mean? And and, and this is where history may not repeat, but it sure does rhyme. You know, if we're looking back at the 70s, 60s and 70s, we had high inflation that was then required a very active Fed, probably it was higher inflation than we have today and a more active Fed than we're probably going to need. But the condition was very similar that required a pretty much chopping at the knees of the economy to get inflation and inflation expectations under control. And then you have what we call in economics, the great moderation, which sure, you got ups and downs, you had recessions, you had a really bad global financial crisis. But for the most part, those, you know, the economy was fairly stable. Inflation was stable. Inflation expectations were relatively stable. That's different than what you see in a lot of other countries. It happened in the U.S., in Europe, in Canada, um, you know, advanced economies with credible central banks, New Zealand, some parts of Latin America. Um, but that may be changing with climate change, with more pandemics, with geopolitical tensions on the rise, with the changes of the global political order, domestic political issues in many of our countries. Those things are going to intersect to create more volatility. There's money to be made in that, but there's also a lot. It means that there's going to be a lot of turning points. And so, you know, and I'm thinking through this, I'm thinking through periods of volatility and what that means in developing countries and what that means for the dollar. Let me start with, you know, oil producers and just take an example of what I think this means for a particular industry pretty much across the board around the globe. So investments in oil production usually require a good amount of stability and forward thinking and, and forecasts of pricing because it's a 10-year investment. What we're seeing in the United States and in actually in a lot of places is that the volatility in prices, which, by the way, did not start during the pandemic. It's been more volatile each decade that we've gone since the really the 80s, has continued to weigh on investment in this industry. Occasionally you get a, you know, I'm not saying the weight, you know, I'm not saying we didn't see investment in the 80s, but very recently we've seen a, a curtailing of it. And we've had, we have seen kind of periods of up and down in investment in this industry over the last, you know, 20 years. Fracking in the U.S. really brought it online, but then you see the oil price decline, recession happens, and it just kind of plummets out. What we're now hearing from many places is that oil investment in the U.S. has really taken a hit. One of the reasons, not the other one, but one of the reasons being that it is hard to forecast prices because of volatility. That's good. That is just the kind of canary in the coal mine, in my view, of what many industries will be facing, which is really uncertain conditions and policy rates that go up and down a lot in the U.S. and abroad. And you can see this in many Latin American countries. And the latest inflation numbers from Brazil showed a pretty stark month-over-month decline in inflationary pressures. The policy rate is still very high 
It's not the highest it's ever been, but it's high. And the central bank is saying, hey, we just had a you know pretty good month in terms of dis- deflationary actually pressures. We're still probably going to raise rates, right? And be- because there's so much uncertainty around what's going on and what's coming next. You see it, in, but that that's similar, but also different to what's going on in like Mexico, where you still have inflation kind of hitting very, very high highs, and the central bank continues to have to get ahead of that. Right. And so and there's the same story in the U.S., Canada, also struggling with kind of where do you go? The U.S. is raising rates. We have to raise rates. They started later than us. Are they behind the curve? I mean, there's just so many questions around this. These countries tended to have monetary policy that was more or less aligned, not always, but, you know, in the previous decades, that's probably gone. And so when you start looking around and go, where are these structural issues? I look at three things. One, inflation in a country. So it's high across the board. Two, what's the central bank doing to address it? That's both a positive and a negative. High rates should help bring down inflation. It also makes borrowing costs high. It raises all kinds of issues and and potentially causes recessions. And then the third piece that I think we all recognize in our countries is that many of our governments took took counter-cyclical fiscal stances to offset the demand shocks of, of the pandemic, which really caused debt to GDP ratios to go very high. And so now you're in a situation where you've got high debt to GDP ratios, rising borrowing costs, including for for sovereigns, and a lot of uncertainty and high inflation. So it's not going to take a lot to tip the whole thing over, right? And some countries will be more vulnerable than others. But really, you know, to go back to the playbook analogy, we're just ripping pages out because we don't know. We haven't played in this on this field in this game for a very long time. But it just looks like there's going to be a lot of volatility. And so now that I've kind of painted this whole picture, maybe it would be a good idea to talk to people who actually, you know, work in the economy and, and, and understand financial markets and just kind of throw the question out there. Does this does this sound crazy? Is this what you're seeing on the ground in your countries? Yeah, Tom, James, y'all want to start with Canada and what you're seeing in Canada? Yeah, maybe maybe I'll give it a start, Greg. Um, certainly, I, I'm talking to the real estate folks in, in our industry, and I have to tell you, I've never met a real estate person that, isn't optimistic. So I, I have to say what we're hearing is is a sentiment of cautious but optimistic. I mean, all of these issues that you're talking about with regards to inflation and interest rates clearly are, are causing people to pause. You know, we've, we've seen transaction volumes go down. We've seen certain development projects canceled and, you know, house prices, which, which are very important to the Canadian economy, they're down over 18% uh, in the year. So that's all, all very significant. And depending on what paper you read, you'd think the sky is falling, right? But when you peel back the onion a little bit, um, you know, the Canadian economy did grow uh, again in, in Q2. Uh, to your point, you know, while interest rates and inflation is is currently high, it's not really expected to be that way uh, uh, in the midterm or, or long term. Uh, you know, even gas prices and food prices have come down. Um, you know, our job numbers, I mean, they certainly weren't as good as, as, as the U.S., but overall, uh, the unemployment rate uh, remains low. So, uh, you know, there's certainly a reason to pause, but no one that we're talking to is 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 panicking. Um, you know, maybe just to, to round it out before I hand it over to James, you know, the, the things that I would have people think about when it comes to the Canadian economy, we already talked about, you know, immigration and how important immigration is to, to Canada. You know, maybe a bit of a reminder, it's pretty obvious, but we are a commodity-based economy. So, you know, the prices that have come under pressure over the last uh, couple of weeks and months clearly uh, cause an issue for us. 
Um, but, you know, just to make the point again on, on housing, uh, we in Canada, we're twice as reliant on the housing market for economic growth. Uh, and, you know, prices, they have come down, but they're, they're still pretty high. I mean, they've been, they've been going up for three years. So for there to be a decrease in housing prices of 20%, that still doesn't get us anywhere back to where we were before. And that continues to perpetuate an affordability issue. We continue to have rental rates increasing significantly, which I know you're seeing in the U.S. And all of that leads to, you know, continued concern about the impact this will have on discretionary consumer spending and the sustainability of consumer debt, which is really important to us for our, our economic growth. So, you know, you add on to that, what is our government potentially going to do to to combat the uh, political pressures they're facing on affordability? You know, these are all things that I don't have an answer to, but uh, what we're talking about and what we're what we're con- concerned with and, and what I think you have to consider if you're looking at what's happening in the Canadian market. Now, I'll leave you with one final thought. Um, this this whole concept of, um, of, you know, workforce considerations, you know, the fact that we in, in our various industries in Canada, as I'm sure you're experiencing elsewhere uh, in, in, in North America, we just can't find the people that we're, we're, we're needing to, to meet the needs. Uh, we have shortages of candidates everywhere. You know, wages have gone up significantly. And quite frankly, in urban centers such as Toronto, we, we struggle getting people back into the office. And, and this is just creating a whole new dynamic that is really taking up the energy of, of uh, executive teams to figure out, you know, what, what type of hybrid model uh, do we need to put in place to, to keep productivity in place, to keep culture in place, and to keep businesses going. So, Tim, that's what we're looking at, Greg. That's what we're hearing. Um, James, I'll, I'll hand it over to you well, from let me, a, let me first a management perspective. Yeah, let me first talk about the U.S. real estate in contrast. A very similar, right? Very optimistic. And I think when you talk to people uh, in the industry, they're looking at these this uncertainty without this playbook and saying, what is this going to mean? Because if you look at back in history, and I've been in the real estate business a long time, when real estate's about to go into recession, you say, well, we're over levered. Well, in the U.S., we don't, we're not over-levered by any means. Well, you're overbuilt. We still have a lot of supply-demand imbalance in a lot of areas. Okay, well, your operating income, your NOIs must be poor. Now, we've got significant rent growth even in this year. You know, I think they look and say, what is it that can go wrong? And I think that the, the pause in transaction volume and deploying is saying – I'm not sure I can read these tea leaves because, as you said, Tim, we keep ripping out the playbook of of how is this going to come out. But I think that in the U.S., from a real estate perspective, even in spite of the fact that most people believe we're going to have a recession in the next two years, not a lot of concern that they're not going to be able to weather, you know, that recession. And even the rise in interest rates, I mean, if you look at where they are today, I mean, a lot of the people who've been around a long time said, it's not that bad an interest rate, right? So if you look at historic, uh, you know, standards. So uh, the same thing in the U.S. Um, it's really just, you know, where's the workers going to come? Because it's all about jobs, jobs, jobs. And I think in the U.S., I'll echo you, Tim. I mean, we need, you know, immigration reform to really get our immigration system working again so we can get workers into the U.S. I think that's probably one of my biggest concerns going forward. So very similar to that. So, James, didn't mean to interrupt, but I'll throw it back to you. Talk about the asset management in in Canada. 
Yeah, thanks, Greg and, and Tom. I mean, I tend to be a little bit more hawkish <laughs> than Tom, and uh, that's because, you know, he's been in an industry that has grown for the last three decades. Um, and, and you know, I, I think I think real estate will be fine in, in Canada. There's still supply issues. There's still going to be demand from immigration and, and so on. So I think that part of the story is, is okay. Um, we are seeing... Uh, bankruptcies and proposals go up in the last couple of quarters. So that trend is worrying. And, and I think the other thing, not, not to harp on the real estate side of it um, anymore, but the one thing is, is that we have a lot more people with variable rate mortgages than the United States, right? It's, it's almost actually reversed in terms of how many people have variable rates. So, you know, as those costs go up, there is some worry about how that's going to impact people. And are we going to see more consumer uh, bankruptcies? I, I then I think the only other thing that I would say, and I echo the points on kind of the labor side, um, we are starting to see layoffs in the tech sector in Canada. And, you know, financial services, asset management, real estate need all of those people and more. And so we've got to get those people retrained and we've got to attract them. And and that's really a real key because we're, we're certainly we're still seeing labor shortages a- across our industry. And, and then the other piece of that tech slowdown is we have a lot of asset managers and financial services companies that made a lot of money off of all of the tech unicorns in the last year that we've seen in Canada in, you know, on the West Coast, in Montreal and Toronto. And so where are those returns going to come from in the next six months to a year, I think is people are going to be searching for that. And that's going to be a challenge. Not, not to end on kind of more depressing note in Canada, but there, there definitely are, you know, there's going to be some uh, challenges uh, at least for the next year. Yeah. James, I think that's that uncertainty of, you know, where is it going and where are those opportunities going to come from? That I think you're seeing across, across the globe. So Lena, what about Brazil? What are you seeing on the ground in Brazil? It's funny because we are seeing a lot, a lot of similarities uh, uh, between the countries or what is going on after the pandemic. But in, in Brazil, not different from uh, other countries. So we, we had uh, inflation above the target. So, and in order to contain inflation, uh, Brazil's central bank rose the interest rates from 2% to 13.75%. You know, I think analysts here think that maybe they will have one more increase and then they will stop. But definitely economists, if you put 10 economists together, everyone will have a different view. Uh, but, uh, you know, the fact is that Brazil Central Bank rose interest rates to contain inflation. And uh, last month, uh, we, we had the deflation. So that's uh, something that beginning to be under control. Another thing that we are seeing here, that is the, the unemployment unemployer rate uh, is also under control. Not, uh, unemployer rate rose a little bit. Uh, during the pandemic, but then now it, it's, it, it seems like to be under control. Uh, it, it's very important to say as well that this year uh, is a president election year in Brazil. And, and as part of that, so President Bolsonaro, uh, it, it's giving 
incentive, incentives to the, the low classes in Brazil to uh, control uh, uh, the spenders of these people and, and also in order to help him on his re-election project. And, and, and one of the things that um, our Minister of Finance also is mentioning is that uh, it's during the crisis that you see opportunities, right? Uh, and one of the, the, the things that uh, we are discussing in Brazil uh, is that the, the way the countries will operate after, uh, you know, the pandemic and, and, and the Russian-Ukraine war will be different. So, uh, and Brazil can play uh, a very significant role on that because uh, people will think uh, twice uh, and continue to operate with Russia and China. Uh, and uh, we, we can play a very important role, not only because of the uh, be more close to the U.S., for instance, but also uh, uh, to have uh, important commodities uh, that we can play that role on the, on the economy side. Uh, so this is on, on the macroeconomies. Um, I think on the, the asset management industry, so we, we are seeing the industry uh, very resilient. The assets under, uh, 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 under management, they, they, they continue to grow, uh, but because of this increase of the interest rates, so we, we are seeing the shift of the uh, structure products to more fixed income projects, you know. So uh, people uh, and managers would like to get the advantage of the high interest rate um, to have good profitability of their portfolios. Uh, we, we are also expecting for this year, 2022, uh, two important uh, regulatory rules on the asset management industry uh, the, the first one will be uh, the new uh, rule for, for liquid funds in Brazil. Uh, and the second one will be the new rule for the distributors. So I think th these will be important rules that will uh, uh, be very favorable for uh, administrators and managers uh, in Brazil. So another thing that we are seeing uh, it's an increase of uh, investments in uh, private equity, venture capital, and credit and real estate. Uh, some managers are, uh, you know, saying that uh, prices, because of the crisis, they are uh, with a very opportunistic view, you know, very low, and it's the moment to invest. We are seeing, you know, uh, international investors investing in Brazil to get the advantage of the prices. Um, and another thing that we are discussing is that, you know, the distribution platforms, uh, they, they, they had a very good increase uh, in Brazil over the past years, but they are now consolidating with the major digital banks. You know, uh, I think 
this is a trend that we are seeing here. So I think this is um, what we are seeing on the on the Brazil asset management industry. Thank you, Lino. Very helpful. And Tim, I'm hoping you don't think the U.S. has to go to a 13 and a half percent interest rate to cool off inflation. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's a a number we hope not to see. No. What is your magic number, before I turn it over to Carlos? Where where do you think they're going to have to go before they reach a point that they, you know, started to cool inflation and can, you know, stop the interest rates hike? Do you you have a view on how high you think they're going to have to take them? Yeah, right now we're looking at 4% by the end of the year. Um, Could go a little bit higher in the, the, you know, uh, first quarter of next year, four, four and a half. I mean, but, you know, Lino's talking about double digits, so we'll leave it there. But it's, it's all relative, right? I mean, like you, and this is one of the things about volatility is Brazil, you know, has traditionally had more ups and downs in the rate. It's a very credible central bank, but they've still had to do more ups and downs in the interest rate than we've had to do in the U.S. You know, last 20 years, we're, we're, you know, Greg, you probably remember the, the before times before, you know, but like we were talking like one and a half, two percentage points back in the, you know, even the 80s, it was like five. Right. 90s, you know, and so there's just been a lot more volatility. So our view is that four, even though it's a lot less in other places, it's still going to be quite uh, contractionary. Yeah, and at historic standards, four in the U.S. is not necessarily that high, right? Yeah. I think we we've, we've kind of had a period of time, like you said, in the last 10, 20 years, it's been, you know, historically low, and we kind of got addicted to those low rates, and you know, maybe it wouldn't be that bad to have, you know an increased rate going forward to be a more stable, stable economy moving forward. But I know that's beyond my pay grade. So Carlos, what about Mexico? What what are you seeing in Mexico? Well, uh, prior to Lino speaking, I was seeing we had uh, really high rates, but after hearing Lino, I think we're doing okay. (laughs) I'm going to start by saying, and very consistent with what Tim already mentioned, the name of the game here in Mexico now, it's two things and it's, pretty consistent with the region, it's inflation and rates. Uh, If we talk about GDP, uh, we're estimating a 1.5 growth for the year, which is way lower than the one we had for uh, last year, uh, which was around uh, 4.8. Not enough to offset the previous one, uh, which was a negative almost 9%. Uh, Mexico was pretty... Uh, badly hit by the pandemic, and we're estimating a, a GDP growth of 1.2, which is lower than these years, but it's, from what we've seen, uh, unless you tell me otherwise, it's consistent, uh, a lower GDP growth for next year is consistent with what's happening in a lot of countries. Uh, we talk about exchange rate, uh, it, it's been stable, and we think it's going to remain like that. Uh the, the most relevant thing, like I said, uh, uh, it's in inflation and, and rates. A lot of corporate investors are uh, anticipating that uh, Banco de Mexico, which is Mexico's central bank, the, the Mexican Fed, if you will, uh, will end uh, the year over 9%. And um, provided this is true, this could be the highest rate we, we've had in over a decade. Uh, it's a little lower than than Brazil's 13.75, I think it was what Lino mentioned. Inflation continues to increase. Uh, During July, we had a a higher inflation than actually expected, and it was a high uh, expectation, mainly driven by by food and and electricity. 
And together with the fact that, and again, this was already brought up by Tim, that the United States uh, just recently increased uh, the rate, I think it was 75 BPs, uh, these two things will likely make uh, Mexico's central bank to to increase their rate uh, in a similar way during their coming meeting, which is in a couple of days from now. We're expecting inflation to continue growing during this semester and end up with a 7.5, I think, percent for 2022. And we don't see that decreasing in the first semester of 2023. I, I think it'll be the the second half of 2023 where we're going to see a little slowdown of inflation. So all this being said and, and, and trying to to put it in the asset management context, what what, what we're seeing now, and 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 considering how volatile the markets uh, have been, and and the low expectations a good piece of the market has, and on the equity side, uh, we're seeing a shift more towards setes, which are the government uh, bonds. Those those provide investors here in Mexico with higher yields, given the the high rates we're having, uh, than than many of your your typical, uh, to put it in some way, portfolio mixes. While Banco de Mexico's rate is is used for, for the interest that banks charge, setters, uh, uh, these government bonds are used for, for interest paid by banks. So uh, when Me- uh, Banco de Mexico increases the rates, uh, so the setters, and it, it, it's been interesting to see this, again, shift to, to, to set this uh, and going away a little more uh, looking for the, the safe side of the investment. That happens and, and it's an interesting thing with domestic investors. One of the things we're seeing now is foreign investors going away from CETES, not because of the rate per se. It's more not, not, not political, but uh, like all the implications that investing in government bonds in Mexico may have. So it's more of a domestic thing. That, that's, again, uh, what, what I have to say as it relates to Mexico, which, again, is, is I guess, consistent with what we've heard uh, from him and my colleagues before, Greg. Yeah, terrific. Thank you, Carlos, and appreciate those comments. Tim, when you think about you know, the Latin American candidate, say, you know, the Americas here, you made some comments earlier about with China and Russia and the instability over there, that it may create opportunities, you know, for more regionalism, I'll put it that way, versus globalism. Do you think that, you know, you're seeing a permanent move there or is this, you know, one of those things, well, yeah, it looks like it's going to be that a couple of years, we're going to tear up that playbook. I mean, what, what do you, you see, or some of those shifts are hard to come back once they shift as well. So maybe you can expand on that a little bit. Yeah, this is a great place. I'm going to stick with those sports metaphors. This is an area I feel safe in. Um, but, you know, one of the fascinating moments about about right now is that because we don't have this play, because we don't really know how to approach this, you know, you could say that we've sharpened our minds, right? So if you're up big in a game, we use a football analogy, 45-0, you know, if you talk soccer, 3-0, right? Your defense laxes a bit, right? That's what the last couple of decades were. We had, we kind of knew what was going on. We got surprised once in a while, but the economies were – most of these economies, you know, a, a, a big bit were, were fairly stable. Each one has gone through things. There's commodity super cycles in, in LATAM, and there was the you know, Mexican peso crisis and things like that. But – Relative to human history, looking really far back, it was a moderately stable period. 
that we got, you know, three nil. And so now we're in a place where the game is tied and our minds need to sharpen a bit. And this is in some ways why maybe all of this talk about recession may be helpful because we're kind of foreseeing it. We don't tend to do this very well as economists and we're kind of foreseeing it. And so that is allowing businesses um, to kind of look for the arbitrage, you know, what, what you're kind of mentioning, Greg, and we've heard kind of from Lino and, and Carlos and James and Tom, there's differences here that you can that provide opportunity, and we're thinking about it, and we're looking for them as opposed to just going, oh, it's another good year. And so I don't want to downplay that, again, because we've had, you know, there are shifts in the, in the last couple of decades that were, that were material, but this is could be a whole new ball game. And so when you go into that and you say, okay, well, what does this mean for the global economy? I'm thinking through what does reshoring mean? What does onshoring mean? You know, it does seem likely that I don't want to say we can get away from globalization. I think that's an overstatement. There are minerals exist where they exist. Oil exists where it exists. Lumber exists where it exists. We can't really change that. What we can do, if you're looking to kind of, let's say, shore up your supply chains, um, because you could, one argument you could make is that our just-in-time supply chains were inappropriately pricing risk over the last 30 years, um, is to move kind of intermediate or even final production closer to markets. Where are the biggest markets, you know, in terms of consumption of goods? U.S., Europe, China, right? And so countries like Mexico, to your point, Greg, could really benefit if these if, if say, cut, um, companies decide to move some of the final production closer to U.S. markets but still capture that wage differential between a U.S. worker and uh, a Mexican worker. So that's a potential you know, boom, but to your, you know, that's going to take a long time. So it's, it's not going to happen right now, but also, like you mentioned, it's not going to just reverse itself. So these are, the, these are the decisions that when I talk to clients, when I talk to other economists, when I talk to folks out in, in the real world, they're saying we're thinking about these in a material way in, 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 the, in, in ways we hadn't thought about them before. And so that tells you there's, there's opportunity here. There's places you can go if you're in asset management, if you're looking forward and digging in a little bit, to see there's there's differences between countries and the shift in in markets is really going to provide places um, an opportunity for growth and I think the reassuring of final production is one place to definitely look in LATAM for sure. Yeah, thank you for that. And I think as we come close to the end of our time, you know, in our industry, a lot of our participants' volatility is opportunity, right? And so I think that when we look at you know, this market where we say is uncertainty because we don't have that playbook. A lot of our, there's going to be a lot of opportunity created for our clients. Not as much comfort in, you know, foreseeing the future. We had an economy that's been growing rapidly for a number of years. But I think for, you know, our many parts of our industry, there is a time for them to shine and use their skills and their their knowledge to to really create value for their their investors. And we continue to see significant amounts of capital. I mean, the rise in private capital continues to increase in the alt space, particularly. I don't see that going away at all. And so that capital is going to get deployed. And so I think the markets, even though we've taken a little bit of a pause, and again, off of historic transaction volume, mind you. So even though we've taken a pause, there's still, you know, transaction volume out there. I think you're going to continue to see that be strong as we move forward. And, and the hope is, is that if we do have, quote, a recession, whenever the economists decide, decide to define it as a recession, uh, that it will be in, in, in a mild or will be something we move through quickly. But uh, again, I want to thank all of you, the panelists, for being here. And thank Tim, especially for joining us for this group. We'll definitely have you back. And to all those that are listening, 
uh, please reach out to any of us with any questions or comments or suggestions. We'd love to talk to you. Um, you know, our contact information will be there. And with that being said, we wish everybody a good day and hope to speak soon. Thanks for listening to Talking Asset Management with KPMG. Be sure to subscribe to this series and visit read.kpmg.us forward slash talking dash asset dash management for more information.